but hopefully your Bibles are still open to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel 4. Well, it was July of 2001. I was standing near the Rose Garden in the White House. There were about 20 of us. We were ushered over to a grassy area. It was a roped-off area. And suddenly, there were three Marine One helicopters flying above us. The, the wind of the propellers were washing against our face as we looked up and saw two scatter, and one came and gently landed on the grass about 60 to 70 yards away from us. After the propellers stopped, a door came open, the stairs came down, and out walked George and Laura Bush. And they walked over to our group, and he stuck out his hand, and he shook our hands, and he sat, just stood there and talked to us. He uh, said a couple things, and then he was about to walk away, and one of the guys in our group reached out and said, hey, we're praying for you. And he turned around and he looked at us and in, in sincerity looked at us and said, thank you, I need it. And of course, three months later, he definitely needed it uh, as he led the, the, the country through 9-11. That was a memory that I'll cherish the rest of my life. We have memories like that. Important events, maybe the, the birth of your baby, first time you held that baby in your arms. Maybe it was the day you got married. Hopefully that's a memorable event for you, cherished event. Uh, maybe you met an important person, or maybe you won something. For the, for the believer, for the Christian, the most significant event, though, in our life is the day that we were saved by Christ. If you're a born-again Christian, you have what we call a testimony. And a testimony is a story of how you heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how God worked in your heart in such a way that you turned from your own sin and believed in your own ideas, maybe a different religion, and you trusted in Jesus Christ that his death and his resurrection were sufficient to save you. And that was the day that he gave you eternal life. And, and so really, a testimony is actually more about God and what he has done than it is actually about you. It's about God's grace coming into your life. And in Daniel chapter 4, we have a testimony from King Nebuchadnezzar. And again, it's not really that much about King Nebuchadnezzar as much as it is God working in his life and showing grace to this king. Before Daniel chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar was a cruel despot. He had ruled before this time for about 30 years. This is 30 years into his reign. And he was a very evil and wicked king. He conquered much of that world, much of that part of the Middle East and beyond. He was an, an emperor of sorts over that large area. He was an angry, wicked man full of pride. 
I looked up some details and read some things about some of the things he did, and you can't even say those in public. It's so vile what he did. He set himself up as God and really above God. And so as you read this story, for God to work in the heart of a man like this, to humble a man like this, this is an extreme work of grace. Well, maybe not so extreme and we understand how sinful our hearts are. So this is an astonishing supernatural work in the heart of a man who is far from God. And I believe the purpose of this text, of this chapter, really the purpose of King Nebuchadnezzar's testimony, and in the end, the purpose of God's work in our life, is that we might know and trust that he is God most high. King Nebuchadnezzar wrote this testimony about how God worked in his life and how he was humbled. And you see over and over, six times you see God's name used as most high God or God most high. And over and over you see this idea that we are to humble ourselves under the hand of God most high. And I believe that this propositional statement can sum up what this passage is teaching us. And that is this, because God rules as the most high, we must humble ourselves before him in repentance and faith. I believe that's what this text is teaching us. We are to recognize that he rules as God most high, and therefore we must humble ourselves before him in repentance and faith. Let's ask God to use this text of scripture to breathe life into our souls. Would you do that with me? Let's pray. Father, we believe this is your word. Your word is powerful. It's like a sword that can pierce our hearts and show us who we really are. It's like, it's like a hammer that breaks the hard heart in pieces. And so use this scripture to get a hold of our hearts so that we, Lord, may have a closer and sweeter communion with you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you realize that Daniel chapter 4 was written to you? Look in verse 1. Notice King Nebuchadnezzar sent this letter out. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples. So that includes you, nations and languages. Of course, there was no English back then, but he wrote this to us. That dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. And it has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the, and here's the name of God we're going to see over and over in this chapter, that the most high God has done for me. King Nebuchadnezzar, through these events here, acknowledges that God, the Hebrew God, the God of the Bible, the one true God, is the high God, the most God Most High, or Most High God, however you want to say it, is the Hebrew name El Elyon. El is the name for God. It means strong one when it's used by itself in the Old Testament Hebrew. It's the name God. So El God. And then what you see in the Old Testament is you see different names for God that actually give us a description of who God is. It tells us these attributes of God that are unique to him. 
So you hear El, God, Shaddai, or Almighty, God Almighty. And I would actually recommend that you study the names of God. It's a great exercise. I actually recommend that you pray to God using his names. The men meet at, uh, once a month, uh, second Saturday of the month, and we do this many times. We'll take the names of, of, of the Lord and pray them to him, remembering who he is. So El means God. Elyon means superlative. It's the highest. So it's not just high. It's not just higher. It's the most extreme high you can possibly get. So this weekend, we're remembering those soldiers, those men and women who have sacrificed their lives so we can have the freedom to do this right here. I think it's actually appropriate for us to do that as a country. And we think about our military, and our military's pretty good, isn't it? Would you say, would you say our military is pretty good? Now, would you say our military is great? Would you say our military is the greatest military that's ever been on the face of this earth? Yes. I think so. It is. So in other words, it's not just a high. It's not just higher. It's the highest, right? And I don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's God or we're God or anything like that. My point is, is that it's the superlative. Like, this is the best, most possible you can ever get. And that's Elyon. Elyon is the word that helps us to understand that there's no thing there's no creature, there's nothing that is alive, that has been alive, nothing in heaven, nothing on earth that even compares to God. God is apart from his creation. He is, he's elevated infinitely higher than any being. Elion is the name that helps us to understand that he is the transcendent one. He is greater than his creation. He is independent of his creation. So when you hear the name El Elyon or God Most High, your mind should try to fathom God who is infinitely beyond your ability to fully understand. So that's El Elyon, God Most High. And this, this name is used over and over in the Old Testament. And this also uh, is applied to God possessing everything. So he is the highest, but also he possesses our owns everything, and therefore he rules over everything. And so look, notice in verse 3 how, how ne King Nebuchadnezzar describes God most high. He, he breaks out into this song or this poem here when he thinks about God. Verse 3, how great are his signs. Signs is the word that describes something supernatural. How mighty his wonders. Wonders refers to something that causes awe or astonishment. And the truth is, King Nebuchadnezzar saw this in his lifetime, right? Ten years before this, he had three Hebrew men he threw into a fire. They walked around. They came out. They didn't even smell like smoke. Their hair wasn't singed. I mean, is that a pretty amazing wonder? And I don't know if he forgot about that or what happened ten years later. Probably a lot like us, we tend to ignore God and what he's done in our life. But look at verse 3. goes on to say, his kingdom, God most high, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion endures from generation to generation. So King Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that God is the eternal king. God is the king above him, above all kings, and he's the king of all time. And then he goes into his story. 
of what happened to him. And I I think it's noteworthy to look at the end of verse number two and notice that King Nebuchadnezzar doesn't just recognize that he is the most high God who is transcendent, but he also recognizes that God works in his life in a very personal way. He says at the end of verse two, well, I'll read the whole verse. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. So he goes to the highest, then he comes down to the lowest, to me. God rules in this world to glorify himself. And what glorifies God is when his creation humbles their hearts before him and worship him. God's reign in this world is done for the purpose of bringing people into relationship with himself. Think about that. God's reign over creation is for the purpose of a personal relationship with his special creation made in his image. That's us. That's you and me, man and woman. That's amazing to think about. There's a lot going on in this world. There's a lot going on in this universe. I mean, and he controls all that. He, he enables it to all spin and work. And yet he does all that for his glory and he's glorified by having his creation submit to him in worship and praise. Consider Genesis chapter one and two here. Man and woman, Adam and Eve were made in the image of God and they were made to do what? To enjoy him and to glorify him, to walk with him in fellowship. Even Abraham, Abraham is called the friend of God. So that describes his relationship with God. I mean, think about that. He was described as a friend of God. Yet what's interesting is he also is the first one in the scriptures to use this name, El Elyon, God Most High. The scripture says in Genesis 14, but Abraham said, Abram said, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. So to Abraham, it wasn't just that God was, was the high exalted one, but he also was a God who was very personal to him. He was a friend of God. David was running from Saul. David was hiding in a cave. He was scared for his life. He cried out to God. And notice how he cried out to God in Psalm chapter 57. I cry out to God most high, to El Elyon, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. So David believed that God is most high, but he also works in his life in a very personal way. He's working, he's reigning, he's ruling to fulfill his purpose. Even that trial that David was going through was for the purpose of God, God's purposes in his life. We should have a high view of God. We should consider God as the high and holy one. He's unique. He's separate from us. He's separate from his creation. But also remember that God is near to us. He he is with us. Christian, he's with you in the, the person of the Holy Spirit. He's he works in our life through the person of Jesus Christ. And his work, his work in our life is to bring us into a closer relationship with him. Philippians 2.13 is a verse that 
God has used in my life many different times, particularly when I was around 19 years old. I was a sophomore in college. It's my second semester, and I hurt my knee, and I had played in the soccer team for the past two years, and that was now in jeopardy. I was going into the summer. I was going to be a camp counselor, and that was up for question. A couple weeks after my surgery, I was supposed to travel on a, a music team that was going to travel around the country, and now that was something I didn't know if it was going to happen or not. I found myself in a room by myself in what they called the sick building, or the, I can't remember what actually it was called, but the, the, with the sick people, and they put me in a room by myself since I wasn't sick, and I had my leg elevated because I just had surgery, and for two weeks, I sat in a room with myself and a Bible, and that was it. It was before cell phones were popular and able to be owned by normal people. And they didn't have a TV there. So, but I found myself in a really blessed time. Because as I got the scriptures out, and I was in some sense forced to read, like, what, what does the Bible say? I read scriptures, and one of them was this passage right here. And I would say that those two weeks were some of the most blessed weeks of my life. It was really the first time that I genuinely started just reading through the Bible and studying the Bible. It was the first time that I truly just cried out to the Lord on a regular basis, and I saw God work in my life. And when I came to Philippians 2.13, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purposes, it hit me that everything that happened to me was according to God's plan. God was working in me, and God had a good purpose for me. And really the greatest purpose for me personally at that time was that I could commune with him. And after those two weeks, it dawned on me. I recognized that this is what God was doing in my life. And so Christian, we need to remember that everything in our life is directed by God. And for you personally, he's directing you into a closer, into a deeper relationship with him. And if you're without Christ in here, I would say that God is working in your life to bring you to him so that you can be in fellowship with him so that you will turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ as your savior. In fact, look at the very end of chapter number four. I didn't read this this morning, but notice how the story ends. Chapter four of Daniel, verse 34. At the end of the days I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. This is when he was humbled before the Lord. He finally recognized that God is the high God. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. And look at verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right. His ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He recognized that God was working in his life, and actually God's work in his life was good. It was righteous. It was just, and it was done to humble him. And therefore, that's why we say that because God rules as most high, we must humble ourselves before him in repentance and faith. That's what we see here in Daniel chapter 4. I mean, here, here you have a king who's the worst of the worst. I mean, if anyone 
could be considered too far gone from God, it's this guy right here. Yet, God works, has grace, and turns his heart to him. Notice verse number four, Daniel 4, 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Let's, write, let's stop right there and think about the context for King Nebuchadnezzar. Archaeologists have, have dug up the palace for uh, King Nebuchadnezzar or where he lived, the city walls. So they know much about Babylon, what it was like. Babylon was a 14-mile square city. It totaled 56 miles long. It, its uh, walls were 300 feet high. That's as high as a 27-story building. I don't even think we have a three-story building in, in Simi, do we? Maybe we do. I missed it. The Euphrates River flowed through the middle of the city. There were ferry boats and ships that would bring in cargo. King Nebuchadnezzar had this massive, ornate palace. And we could go on and on describing his dwelling and how he lived. I think we could probably confidently say that King Nebuchadnezzar was the most prosperous, comfortable man alive at that time. So here's a guy on the face of the earth that's living in luxury, according to that time. I think we probably have a little bit more luxury than even he had, but anyways. Who gave him all that? It was God. Actually, one of the purposes of this dream is to tell King Nebuchadnezzar that he has that power, he has that stuff, because God has given it to him, but yet he did not acknowledge that. And so verse 5, we see the dream. I saw a dream that made me afraid as I lay in my bed. The fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. So this was a supernatural dream. He recognized that this was from God, so he was afraid. And as you Remember, as we read the dream, you could probably tell that there was signs of judgment in here. So he was, uh, he was scared. So look at verse 6. He calls the wise men, so I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me. And then look at verse 7. The end of verse 7, or I'm sorry, look at verse 8. The Bible says, and at last Daniel came in before me. So all these wise men come in. They can't tell the dream. They don't know the interpretation. Or they could maybe guess, but they're probably a little scared by it, right? But finally, Daniel comes in. Now, here's the question. Why did Daniel come in at the very last? Well, we don't really know. The text doesn't say. But it does seem to indicate that it might have been Daniel's decision to do that. Look at verse 8. He says, at last, Daniel came in before me. So it's likely Daniel knew this is from God. And so he waited, waited so all the worldly wise people could come and maybe give their opinion or at least be shown to not have any wisdom, and then God could come to tell the true interpretation. And so what was the dream? Well, we're not going to read the dream again. Let's just describe it and think about it. It was this huge tree, right? This huge tree grew up. I mean, it was so large that the top of the tree reached the clouds that spread out over the earth. It was strong. It was mighty. It had fruit all over the tree. Birds came from all over the earth and lived in the tree and made their nests up there. Uh, animals came from all around and lay under its shade, ate of its fruit. And look at verse 17. 
we find out, actually, let me go back to, uh, go to verse 22, Daniel 4, 22. Let's, we find out who this is about in verse 22. This is when he's standing before Daniel, and, or Daniel standing before the king, and the king tells him the meaning, verse 22. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. So who is the tree? The tree is Daniel. Daniel's a tree. He's the one that grew strong and so actually, at this point in the dream, it looks like a pretty good dream, right? Until it turns and it changes. And the massive tree was cut down by these angels. The branches were broken. The fruit was spoiled. The birds flew away. The animals were scattered. And all that was left was a stump with these iron and bronze bands around it. And then suddenly the imagery changes to now there's a man out there. He has lost his mind. He's acting like the animals that used to live out there. He's eating the grass of the field. And then the angels say what the dream means. Look at verse 17. In this dream, the angels say this. The, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones. So this is repeated twice to confirm this is true. And verse, and verse 17 goes on to say, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. So why did God give him this dream? Well, in the dream, he says, it's so everyone will know that there is one God, that he is the Most High God. And he gives to, what, to whom he will. In other words, the dream is a wake-up call for King Nebuchadnezzar to acknowledge that the Most High is God. God has given him what he has, and he must submit to him in humility. And then notice the end of verse 17. He sets over it the lowliest of men. In other words, God's desire for each person is that they would humble themselves before the Lord. Do you realize that everything you have, every good gift in your life, has come to you by the hand of the Most High God. In fact, when we read, Abraham, we read Genesis chapter 14, verse 22, the end of that, Abraham recognizes that because God is Most High, that he's the possessor of everything, heaven and earth and all his stuff. This came right after there was a, there was a theft. Things were taken away. Abraham went out. God helped him get the stuff back. And he declared here that everything that we have is owned by God. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 32 uses this same name for God. Deuteronomy 32, 8, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, he divided mankind. He fixed borders of the people. In other words, you are where you are in life. You are in the place you are because God Most High rules and he placed you there. It's no accident you were born into the family you were born into. It's no accident you were, were born into this country or you went, were born into another country and you came to this country. You are where you are because God has placed you here. And if you're in a good context, listen to this. Thank God for that. Remember that God most high is the one who rules. And James, we remember this, that every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, God most high with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. We must remember that everything we have, our job, 
our children, our, our bank accounts, no matter how much is in there or not, our health, everything we have is due to God's kindness to us. And it's our obligation to respond to him with thanksgiving and with humility. And I think the problem we face is that we don't recognize that. In fact, actually, many times we think that we actually own all that and everything we have is to be used however we want to use it. And God wants us to repent of that to turn from that idea and recognize that he has given us all things and we're to use the things that we have for his glory. Everything we have is given by God to be used to glorify God. And so therefore, we, I think we need to take our stuff and bring it before the Lord and say, God, this is not mine. This is yours. And, I, and God, help me to use this for your glory. God's good gifts are meant to humble us before him. This is the purpose of God giving you what you have. So you will humble yourself before him in repentance and faith. Because God rules as the most high, we must humble ourselves. We must acknowledge that he is the one who gives us what we have and submit to him in all of it. King Nebuchadnezzar told the dream and the message to Daniel. Look at verse 19. Daniel, of course, is surprised by this. Verse 19, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while. His thoughts alarmed him. This, this is a dream that was a warning to the king. So now, not only does he hear the dream, he has to tell the king what it means. And that is that there's judgment to come upon you. Look at verse 24. Daniel gives the interpretation Verse 24, O king, it is the decree of Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the earth of the field, you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So this dream was a warning to King Nebuchadnezzar to humble himself under the almighty hand of God, to acknowledge that God is God, and to confess his sin before God, to recognize that he deserved judgment under the hand of God, and to turn from his pride and faith in God. Now you would think, that someone like King Nebuchadnezzar, who has all this stuff, you would think that if God were to give people so much blessing that they would say, thank you, God, for this. I want to serve you with my life, right? I mean, think about it. We have so much in our lives, so much in our country that is, that is a blessing. We're maybe this weekend going to sing a song, God Bless America. And we, we thank God for what he's given to us. But with all the prosperity and all the blessing that America has had, America has not humbled themselves under the almighty hand of God. And we have blessing from God. God gives us warnings, and he warns us to turn to him. But still, what do we do? We ignore God. Think about how patient. Think about how patient God has been with our country. Think about how patient God was with King Nebuchadnezzar here. 
Hey, seven years. Seven times. Seven years until he would repent. I mean, that was 37 years into his, his rule in that kingdom. Yet God was patient with him. Think of how patient God is with you. Romans 2 says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? Do you realize, my friend, that God's kindness in your life is supposed to lead you to repentance? You should recognize what God has done in your life and say, God, thank you so much. I'm going to turn from my way. I'm going to turn to most high God and trust in him. God's patience in your life should cause you to come to repentance. But sometimes God, in his love, doesn't just give kindness to us in the form of gifts so we will repent. Many times God causes pain in our life so we will Repent. Hebrews 12, 6 says, For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. Pain is not a bad thing, is it? Yesterday I was at my desk and I was trying to type and my thumb kept hurting. It was like throbbing. I couldn't figure out what was going on. I kept looking at it. And then I realized that there was a splinter in there. You know, you ever had that happen to you? And you're like annoyed by it? But actually, I'm, I'm glad there was pain. I got this, I pulled this splinter out. In other words, pain is not necessarily a bad thing. It tells you that something is wrong. And God in his kindness brings pain into people's lives so that they will recognize that their way is the wrong way. For Jacob, in the Old Testament, it was relational pain. It, it took him the, the pain of about to meet his brother who hated him for him to really submit to God and live in covenant relationship with the Lord. For Joseph, it was the pain of rejection. God used that pain to bring Joseph the joy and the comfort of God's presence. For the prodigal son, it was the pain of his sin. He sat in that pigsty, and he realized, I don't want to live in my sin anymore. And he went back to his father, asked forgiveness, and sought forgiveness from God as well. For Peter, it was the pain of his pride. He needed to be crushed and enjoy the blessing of serving Christ. For Paul, it was physical suffering. He almost had to die in order for God to get a hold of his heart, to trust in him, to trust in the Lord in a deeper way. And for each one of those individuals, and for us as well, God allows pain into our lives so we'll humble ourselves before him and call upon him as the most high and turn and trust in him. This is what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. God's goodness, God's goodness in his life, the blessings in his life should have led him to repentance. I mean, think about it. This guy saw supernatural works, right? He saw three guys walking around in a fire. He saw all the things that God had given him in his life. He had godly men, particularly Daniel, around him that lived a righteous life, and yet he ignored all that. God's mercy warns him here in this text. We're going to find out next week that for seven years, obviously, he did not acknowledge God. He did not humble himself before God. But also, listen, God's grace in the end brought him pain 
God gave him over to his delusional mind, he felt the pain of his own way, and eventually he humbled himself before God. Isn't that kind of God to do that to him? Did King Nebuchadnezzar deserve that? Absolutely not. Isn't it kind of God to give us what we have? Thank you, Lord, for the blessings in our life. Isn't it kind of God to sometimes bring pain in our life? Isn't it kind of God to give us grace and forgive us? Do we deserve that? No more than King Nebuchadnezzar. What will it take? What will it take for God to humble us? What will it take for God to humble our country? What will it take for God to humble you? You could be on top of the world. Maybe everything's going great for you. That should humble you before God to say, God, you're the God. You put this in my life. You gave this to me, and I'm going to follow you. I'm going to take what you've given me. I'm going to use it for the kingdom of God. Or you could be in the lowest possible place in your life. No matter what, either way, God, he is at work, friend, in your life. The loss and the pain, the longing is God saying, I'm God, turn to me, trust in me. God's good work in our life. God's good work in our life is to purify our heart, to, to work in such a way that, we, that the Holy Spirit removes the sin from our life and we are able to walk in fellowship with him and a closer walk with him. And God does that when we humble ourselves before him. So may I ask a couple questions. Are you acknowledging that God is, is the most high God. Do you recognize what is happening in your life? What is happening in your life is God's work in your life to humble you so you'll turn to him. Are you responding to God's work in repentance and faith? If you're a Christian in here, we should have this be a regular part of our daily life. And if you're in here without Christ, or if you're listening and you're without Christ, God's work in your life is to call you to come to him. Is it an accident that you're listening to this message right now? If, if, God, if you feel the stirring of God in your heart, is it an accident that's happening? No. God's gift to you right now is to hear this message. And this is the message. God shows his love for you and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you realize that God loves you so much that he sent his son to this earth to take the punishment for your sin? Christ died for you. And those who humble themselves, confessing their sinners and trusting in Jesus Christ, they receive the grace of God and are saved. And the Bible says, since then, we have now been justified. We've been declared righteous by his blood, by the work of Jesus Christ. Much more shall we be saved by him from God's wrath. So sometimes God puts good things, sometimes he puts difficult things in our life so that we will recognize that he's God and we must submit to him. 
And for those who humble themselves and trust in Jesus Christ, they're declared righteous, they're not guilty before God, and are saved by him from the wrath of God. And so as we conclude this message, I want us to think, all of us in this room, to think, how should we respond to God? We are all the King Nebuchadnezzars here who must submit to God and humble ourselves before him and turn from our way and turn and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question for each one of us in here is, how should you respond to God today? How is he working in your life? Would you bow your head with me in prayer before the Lord? I think it's appropriate for each one of us as a church, as Lighthouse Bible Church, to talk to the Lord in prayer. I want to give you about a minute, minute and a half here to cry out to the Lord, to humble your heart before him. I'm going to go ahead and have the music play, and if you want to stay in your seat there, if you want to turn around in your seat, either way, I encourage you to cry out to the Lord in humility.